New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In this deep dialogue, we'll be hearing from a woman who is the last person in her direct lineage to have lived as a nomad and keeper of her family's stories. Ancestors on both sides of her family were nomads. They traveled the East African desert in search of grazing land for their livestock and the most precious resource of all, water. It only took a few years for her beloved country of Somalia to be changed forever by a civil war that drastically altered the tradition of storytelling. However, Saul's grandmother imbued her with resilience, courage, a love of poetry, storytelling, and above all, an appreciation of the beauty of the Somali culture. Today, we'll be exploring with Shagri Syed Sal her journey from the deserts of East Africa to the green pastures of Northern California. Shagri Syed Sal was born in Somalia in 1974, and in 1992, she immigrated to North America after civil war broke out in her home country. She attended nursing school at Pacific Union College and graduated with honors. Her grandmother and the nomadic community in which she spent her early years, she heard stories and learned of their power to entertain, teach, and transform. She now lives in Northern California with her husband and three children and works as a post-operative nurse and infusion specialist. She's the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. Join us for the next hour as we explore the trials and tribulations of a desert nomad with our guest, Shagri Syed Sal. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Shagri, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine, for having me. It really means a lot to me. And thank you for joining my um, my village, you know. This is my honor. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I would love to begin our conversation to help our listeners know how were you chosen as a young girl to live in as a nomad with your grandmother? 
Um, well, um, Justin, thank you so much. That's a very intuitive question. Let me just to give you a quick overview of what was happening in my family that time. I am a daughter of a well-educated father and a nomadic mother. And so when my mother left that world behind and moved to the city with my father, she knew she has to uh, give one of her daughter as a gift of labor to that nomadic world, to her mother, right? I was born, um, my father, I heard, and mother have one of their most uh, acrimonious argument, you know, if you call it, over my destinies. You see that time, uh, Justine, my father actually held an unusual view that if you educate a daughter, you educate a village. But if you educate a son, you only educate that person. And here comes my young nomadic mother who was who really wanted uh, to give one of her daughter as a gift of labor. I was born as my mother's fourth daughter, tipping the scale in her favor. So that is one battle for her. She gave me uh, to my grandmother. I think I would like to think perhaps my mother saw something in me. You know, she probably saw some kind of resilience. Maybe she felt that I was made for the desert. You know, I I could I was the one who can able to handle. So she picked me up and dropped me in the desert. And you know, Justin, I think my mother Perhaps from what I, as I wrote in the book, she saw something with it. I was one of those big ear kid, very curious. And I always have this intuitiveness about me to figure out the world around me. So perhaps I would say she saw that in me. You know what I mean? And so I... I you know, reckon with that as an adult, you know, was I dispensable? Why did you give me away? But I think, uh, you know, I like to think she saw some kind of strength. And as you see, I I, I handled the de desert. I tamed the desert like my grandmother. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Right. Let's, let's talk about your grandmother. She was an extraordinary person. Uh, Number one, she was a camel trainer, and at that time, women were not, you know, working with the camels. They worked with goats, mostly, but uh, she was also a poet. So, describe your grandmother for us. You know, I even continue to, be, to learn a lot about my grandmother. To give you a quick synopsis about my grandmother, when my grandmother uttered her first Poem. And I say utter or perhaps recite because no one knew how to write or read, right? Everybody comes onto the platform, a poetry charm, and they just say it and without skipping a bit. When she uttered the poems that will make her uh, famous, she was only 12 years old. She was indignant when a woman in her sub-clan um, won a po uh, lost a poetry champ, and she was like, she actually snuck out with the big girls who were in uh, gathering under the moon in the desert, checking out the boys, and you know, exchanging. You know, youngsters kind of like a nomadic mingling, right? Check, you know. The, you test, you pick on that boy if you want to test his character. So here was my grandmother doing that. And, you know, that's how she, that poem that would travel time and two cultures was, she was only 12. I thought when I was writing this book, 
all grandmothers tamed camel and they were camel herders. But as I come to learn, this camel herders was a job for men and camel taming was a job for men. And I, as I really learned even further, what it was is if you were looking after a camel, camels don't necessarily come home daily as they, you know, when you're herding a goats or, or, or cows or sheep, by the end of the night, they come home, right? But camels sometimes uh, they they chew or eat leaves that are quite different from trees. So they wander off the desert for weeks. So she, they, she will encounter lions, hyenas, and all of that. She have no fear. She died of a natural death and in her late 90s. So she literally tamed the desert. And I heard stories of her, a man picking on her. And if she didn't like a man, she created an intricate cerebrum poem. And she could be insulting him while he sat right there and does not know. <laughs> <laughs> that is the woman who I grew up under her shadow and what a beautiful being. And so I guess in a way, I think I owe everything to that woman because I am who I am because of my grandmother, Halima Hirsibile, the poet. How wonderful. How wonderful. What a wonderful heritage. Oh. And that your your mother somehow recognized you as a courageous person. That mm -hmm. you had a, you had an innate courage. Um, mm -hmm. And your mother died when you were very young, you, so you didn't really know her very well. Is that right? I really didn't know her, but at the same time, she was one of the inspiration for this book, right? Because. When my daughter became at the age of six, exactly the time, around six or seven, about the time I lost my own mother, perhaps that was when I was like, who am I? Where, who is this woman who come from this desert that gave birth to 10 children, losing one child only? And and there's no pictures of her. So I really felt like, because of her, I took on this journey. If I cannot find a picture of her, perhaps I can paint her through words and bring her life to words. And what come out is the picture. I believe it's called the desert flower, which is, um, uh, uh, it says only a mother. And the Somali proverb says, I, I, in English, it's it translated, only a mother is indispensable or something like that. I, I could be wrong. But, you know, this is the woman, like, honestly, who gave birth to me, who I long to see and bring her to life. So I am so blessed. Go ahead. Um, I would love for you to say those words in your native language because yeah. it, so that we can hear, hear the language that you grew up with. Yeah, yeah. I do have some, actually, Somali uh, uh, and some uh, Somali proverbs that are that's written here. Not necessarily the one, but let's see. I have this. Carry uh, my mother's chapter is right here around the corner. Just give me one second. The ageless desert flower is the title of my mother's the chapter about my mother's. Hoyadu wala mahuran. It says, 
Only a mother is indispensable is the direct translation, which is translated. One of my mother is a son, Gulet, who I lost recently, but he is the, he is the, a, a, a young man who was intelligent. He tamed, one would say, the Somali literature and English literature. For him, he's the only one who can translate this thing. And I'm not the only one who's saying, Justine, many Somalis look at this Somali proverbs and, I, and they say, wow, your brother is amazing. Though I lost that genius brother and I grieved deeply um, when I lost him for six months ago and I still continue to, grie to grieve him. He left his words uh, behind. What a, yeah. Well, I send you my deepest sympathy um, and to lose a brother. I I lost my own brother about six months ago. So oh, I, it's I just... think we are the same, Justine. My brother-in-law, he, he passed away at, uh, April 6th of this year. And it. I am so sorry, Justine. I do yes. know the... I have have I've become undone. I've come undone because of my brother's loss, and it was hard, hard. Yes, it is hard. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Shagri Syed Sal, and she's the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, it's uh, shagrisal.com, and I'm going to spell her name S-H-U-G-R-I, and her last name, Saul, S-A-L-H, shagrisal.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shagri Saul, and we're talking about uh, her early life in Somali as a nomad with her grandmother, but also um, we're going to talk about that culture and the hardships that she felt and went through in her life before she migrated to the Americas. And you mentioned earlier something about your clan, Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to say something about cl the clan structure. And there's a saying in, in Somali that our forefathers are our security officers. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And these are like our ancestors, mm-hmm. our, our security officers. So, uh, what do you mean by that? How does that work? It, it, that chapter actually came, uh, it was when I was right, went back to the nomadic uh, uh, life again as, as an adult. And we, I almost get raped, right? And I remember in the scene when um, people can read, but here I am looking like a little bit a city girl, right? By then I lived in Mogadishu. I'm going to high school. And all of a sudden, uh, my father took us back to his city, Galkayo, and the war become, he realized it's unsafe. So he's like, okay, let me take these kids to my brother's nomadic world. So I find myself again as a teenager, uh, as a nomad. But the world is not the same for a six-year-old a nomadic child who's looking after her goats to a 15 or 60-year-old developed young woman who is dressed up like a city. So I become a, a target for these uh, bull herders who were herding uh, bulls that was being exported from the country at the time, right? And so this guy was chasing us and obviously... I will come upon another fa- people who were looking after the girl, a man and a woman. And, you know, we both come into a screeching halt, him chasing after us, me and my cousin. And, you know, the woman was telling them, don't you know who this girl is? As she mentioned our clan, our, our father's name and all of that. And she, she was kind of telling them, mess, it, mess up with these girls and you would see what happens to you. So people have insurance, but for us, it's like these girls come from this lineage, right? So if you mess up, there's a price to pay, kind of. So in a way, as a person who's just in grown up here, that is the best analysis I can come up because insurance, when something happens, what do you rely on your insurance to take care of your troubles and problems and fix your car or your burned down house? And in the nomad, if a man rapes you or, or kills another person, it is you clan man or subclans that will revenge for you or stand out for you or even you will have a revered name that no one even dares to uh, mess up. But however, this was a different mayhem world. The government was tumbling down. And really, this young man did not even have, he didn't have this man uh, even branded uh, ox. So really no way of tracing him had he done something that was... um, and he raped me and my cousin, yeah. Well, I just so appreciate. I know I, I read in your book how mm-hmm. youngsters really had to memorize all of their lineage. And, mm-hmm. you know, in Western culture, we've lost that. Mm-hmm. We've lost contact. Uh, like, uh, I've, I've done research, and mm-hmm. I can name my grandmother's side of the family up mm-hmm. to six generations. Mm-hmm. And I can I know each of their names, and sometimes I repeat that. But when I tell that to my friends, they often say, oh, I, I don't know who my grandparents are or mm-hmm. what, what they are beyond the, just my grandparents, my great-grandparents or that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something lost mm-hmm. in Western culture. Would, mm-hmm. Do you have any comment on that? 
Yeah, it's very interesting because at some time, the idea of knowing last names and you're like, this is a reason I wrote this book is for me, uh, there's an interest in knowing the four mothers and their resilience to whoever come after me, that they will know where they come from, right? It really means a lot to me. At the same time, we also know for the Somali clan system, it can, it can be used to make you a foe you know, someone or an enemy, right? So it can be, it can be used in both ways. I know a woman who told me right now, last night I was checking a woman, one woman who they say she was mentally ill. She needed help, nomadic. She was lost in the desert and a man just married her, you know, not knowing, but she was having an acute psychosis. So he really didn't know where this woman come from. And then the woman continued to, um, get worse and they were showing her picture and she were saying this woman this is her full name and her and they mentioned the sub clan of my grandmother right away i i talked to my sisters and i said do you guys know this young woman i didn't want to give the somalis my tribe but i become smart and i said she looked like she could be our relative. So this woman is, they saying, this is her full last name, but they say this uh, is main clan and sub-clan. My mother is sub-clan, we're warriors, and there are specific sub-clans. And people, the minute, as I said in the book, people say, Wagarda know each other quickly. They can say, this is who. And I knew this is one of her daughter, and I'm actually going to help with money. So this is when the clan does something good. And at the time, you know, you would want to know uh, also where you come from and who you are. That kind of thing, it's helpful. But at the same time, we Somalis kill each other in the name of that clan. So it's a, the idea a lot of times really in a modern thing, if it used the way it was meant to use, which is to recognize and identify, it does a perfectly good job. There is a constellation of Somalis. We are all connected through this clan and last names and mothers, tribe and fathers. And we quickly said, oh, you're going to um, the Holland? No one, no Somalis just gets a hotel. Oh, my cousin, my cousin, Ali's cousin, yeah, that one lives there. And he can, I have connections quickly. I have a place to go. <laughs> How wonderful. That's wonderful, wonderful. I'd love for you to talk a, a little bit about the misogyny or um, emphasis, like women are not as well thought of um, as men in the Somali culture. And, mm -hmm. and, um, how, like, I know when you describe that story of you're running away from that herdsman that was going to rape you, and, mm. and I think you said something in the book that you would rather die than be raped. Mm -hmm. And that's how important it is for a woman not to be raped. And can you, can you describe? Yeah, is, yeah I, I can, Justine. That's a very good question. You know, this is a culture that really burden us from a young age and saddle us with all society problem. And they said, you are to blame if something goes wrong. You know, just to give you a, um, a quick background, this is, the desert is a harsh environment. It's scorpion leaves, snakes leaves, uh, hyenas, lions, and war, right? Clans fighting for water, green pastures. There is all of this alliance forming and then um, 
this farming, whatever you call. So what they used to do, and this used to happen in Western cultures, when you want to create peace, they will give each other a virgin daughters and say, you know, I'm giving you this beautiful virgin daughter. And the night, that night, they, they want to find her that she is not only circumcised, but she's also sealed and she only have a little hole to pee. And if they don't see that, they say, what have you, you can actually insult it. Not only that, as you give them uh, uh, spoiled goods, right? But only they will give back that daughter to you and your clan reputation will go down. So there is a survival. In that time, it was a survival. But let me, at the same time, let me see. This is where that comes from. But at the same time, Justine, the most resilient, amazing, strong, um, greatness existing is the Somali woman. Somali women, unlike the Arab cultures, they divorce their husband left and right. They, <laughs> we, we don't put up. You know, we may exist to the most misogynistic culture, but Somali women do not yield for it. So they know. We're not going to accept those things. So, yes, there is this thing tied to that, but we are fighting. And even in a Western culture, we continue to fight. I remember 10 years ago, Justine, there was a woman who talked about being raped because rape is marks you, right? This is why I said, had I been raped at that time, it would have been the end of me. There is no way to face back the man in my life. I have ruined their outstanding in the social standing, right? But I don't think like that today, like that. And my daughters are not carrying that burden, Justine. But at the same time, I am here to tell you, we continue to fight. And I am really, our Me Too movement, I say, is extreme. But I see so many strong Somali women stepping into that extreme mood. To, uh, me, me Too movement, and I see them, they learn, They are sharing the rapes that have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. All these women are, are speaking out, and yes, something that was like, no, we don't want to hear about that. Today, they are forced to listen. Yeah. I, I would love for you to speak because uh, you give a broad landscape of female circumcision in mm-hmm. in of your culture mm-hmm. and you yourself were <laughs> circumcised so mm-hmm. i would love for you to share a bit of your view of that and what how you hold that and how you hold that for your daughters yeah just let me give you a quick overview one thing i really wanted to do justine and a lot of readers appreciate is that no one really took the time to really just give them insight to the world. You know, here I am, this progressive woman who are living a life that is quite different than than that young girl who went under the knife. But when you saw, when I was writing that chapter, you almost think, okay, the Shukri believe in circumcision because here I am bravely standing out and I want to join the rank of an honor girl. I don't want to be a coward. I am going to face the knife. And as I went, I volunteered ahead. The reason I did that, Justin, is to show you the culture that grooms me or grooms young girls for this kind of uh, rite of passage, you know. And it is so intertwined that had I not have that done to me, 
I will not find a husband. I will not um, uh, be a respectable person. It would really take my, it would have really uh, do a number on my self-esteem as a person, right? Well, ostracized you. Ostracized and looked down about. People will spit on you. Even I tell people as a young girl, you know, when a girl accused me, I'm not circumcised. I will take her to a cor- the corner and flash my private at her. I'm like, mm-hmm. And proudly say, don't you even dare to think about that. So that was really me showing you. But at the same time, Justine, as you know, throughout the whole book, I give you, I share a little bit with you. I am curious about sex. Oh, I I, I went to a young woman who now married but circumcised. She shared with me what happens behind those doors. Oh, I didn't know that hole someone has to open. Yeah. So and all of that to the end until I get unshackled and I release that. So that was it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Right. I, I, I really want you to go go into that a little more after the break. I'm here yeah. with Shagri Sal, and she is the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening new dimensions. New Dimensions is brought to you by Friends of New Dimensions membership support and by Larson Publications, publisher of the book An Open Life, Joseph Campbell in conversation with Michael Toms. New Dimensions and our quarter-hour New Dimensions Cafe programs are now available worldwide as podcasts. You can find them at the iTunes Store and on many podcast sites and mobile apps. You can also find our podcasts and much more on our website, newdimensions.org. I'm here with Shagri Sal, and she is the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, shagrisal.com, and she spells her name S-H-U-G-R-I, and her last name S-A-L-H, shagrisal.com. And right now, we uh, I want to go back a little bit, Shagri, if I may, to the ritual of circumcision and how important it is for a young woman's reputation. She she could not even get married without it. Mm-hmm. But you are not passing that on to your daughters, and so I'd love for you to give us the broad landscape here. I honestly I. I, it it feels an honor, and I am so relieved that my beautiful daughters doesn't really they learn as I was writing um this book the details of it. I remember even my son was like, "What they did that to you?" I mean, they don't know. Boys would have known about this as young, as old as my son who is now twenty. My daughter, my daughter would have by by now she would have been circumcised. Both of my daughters, one is fourteen, one. And the fact that 
I can't imagine them being butchered that I was butchered, you know. So I feel such an honor that this is a foreign concept to to my daughter. Not only that, Justine, I let go all the other interesting things that intertwine these things. My daughters can date. My daughters can pick whoever they want. My daughters uh, are not being ostracized for it. My daughters are not. I, I don't treat my daughter, my, my son better than my daughters. There's a lot of things that is, uh, that's kind of wrapped around that. So this is why it was really hard to untangle. It wasn't easy to untangle um, these cultures from one self and this is the reason when when I start the book of course the midsection we talk about circumcision and then like I uh, I'm repeating myself but then talk about what happened is the girl when she married and then I'm talking about if I get raped you know this is uh, that would have been it for me and I would have killed myself and then in the end when I undo my own circumcision right and ultimately unshackled generations that follows me so it ended with me and my daughters will not go through that nor with their children i hope that three generations down they, when they hear the word her somali circumstances is like what yes <laughs> so yes that is, i feel honored and i'm glad that that is not part of yes M- may it be so i know that you besides being in an orphanage for a while there was also a civil war that occurred and mm-hmm. that uh, caused your family to much distress. Mm-hmm. And you ended up in a, a, a farm, your father's brother's farm. And there's a story you tell which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. I was surprised when your uncle and your brothers were together with the camels mm-hmm. and... Your uncle took the brothers and said, oh, we're going to go into town to do something. And Shagri, you take the camel back to the village mm-hmm. by yourself. Mm-hmm. I was so shocked. What was he thinking? And how old were you? And this camel had a reputation for being a really bad, bad... If there was a naughty camel who is not going to get anything from the Santa, that was that camel. It's, you know... Just to set the scene for you, this is when we end up, obviously, I'm a teenager. I am a nomad again because my father is trying to keep uh, keep us safe. What is interesting to me, uh, Justine, is that day I'm actually learning how to stop that camel. I'm asking my cousin, how do you, my cousin was with us as well. Like, how do you stop this camel and how do you do? And she's like, why is this camel? I don't know if that passage made it to, he wants to run over me. She's like, step aside, Shukri. And she's describing where the lions leave, where the hyenas leave. And I'm thinking, you know, I was just curiously asking, didn't think that I end up crossing that land. Let it be. Let them live there. I am part of this herd now. I feel good. And then when we get there in the well and we get the water, it sounds like, you know, I thought my sibling, if if my uncle was going to leave, I thought at least the cousin and everybody was going to come back. But it looks like there was other plan. So the only people who could have come with me was my brother and my sister. And they both like, they remo- removed themselves physically away from my body. And I'm like, you know, that was the scariest, one of the scariest thing I-, I did. And I think I was probably 15 or 16 at the time. 
And I remember facing this uh, as a train that is filled with hyenas and lions and wild dogs and knowing that I have this out of control uh, camel who's been bitten by a hyena. And they said, yes, when he hears the hyena, he's gonna destroy everything. And yet I have to lead him back. So I described the scene of and incoherently, randomly talking to him, treating him and him with his big eyelashes, like looking at me. I hope you know what you're doing, girl, kind of. And to be honest, you know, and just in the people can read the book, but that Kamal obviously heard uh, the sound of the hyena. He tried to get rid of uh, of all of his belonging and everything and run wild. And I did something, I don't know if I should say that, that made everybody proud of me to this day. My, I mean, I feel I gained much confidence from taming the desert that night. And perhaps, I guess that's what my mother saw in me, that whenever you throw situation at me, I find ways to come out at the other end. But that is the closest I get uh, being eaten by a hyenas and lions that night, you know. Oh my, and you arrived at the village I with did. the water intact, and that's Everything. that's really, really precious. And you got that camel to obey you and 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 get up. He and laid. I was the first time that he heard that sound. He he did even to the nomadic, my uncle was saying, even to his own family, he had in the past destroyed everything and run wild. So he could not believe that I, that that time a city girl, was able to do that. And I don't know, perhaps he too saw something in me and and that I am capable of that. And as a nurse, Justine, I'm put into a situation like that all the time. Not long ago, one of my six feet seven patients, he literally dropped and fainted. And I had to quickly think my little 90 pound body have to <laughs> save that guy so i'm t- always thrown into a crazy situation so exactly. perhaps the desert is still is with me <laughs> the skills that i learned from that grandmother exactly well um the civil war in somali just really upset everything and that's when you grew up in islam but it was as a as sufism Yes. Uh, but then when the Civil War happened, uh, Somali became very fundamentalist Muslims and women had to cover themselves completely and do all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. how did things change uh, at, during the Civil War and are they continuing that way? Yeah, it's interesting that it, I actually described the, the chapter in when I'm about to leave with Mukdusha or be prior to that, just watching, being a teenager, listening, music, having a crush on, uh, on boys and going to high school and seeing the earliest whisper, which is stemmed from Saudi Arabia. It is interesting today, uh, Justin, that actually Saudi uh, Arabia themselves, they are steering away from that, you know. But do you know that? That's what's happening. And yet, at that time, the Saudi Arabia injected Wahhabism in my country. 
And and I remember women wearing this beautiful traditional cloth and the young girls going to different kind of a madrasa. This is when the Wahhabism were spreading their messages, right? And then all of a sudden, this woman will come back, abandon her traditional cloth and will cover Barka, the way Afghanistan women are. Somalia and Afghanistan really mimic each other. And whenever I look Afghanistani, I go, Oh my God, this is Taliban is Al-Shabaab. This is craziness that's taking place is taking place in Somalia. So really, this is what I remember seeing it, you know. And ultimately, um, the Wahhabism uh, won and tipped my people from Sufism, which was very uh, kind of... Um, part of the culture, right? They didn't oppose each other, but rather complement each other. And Wahhabism, which were, insist on a strict interpretation of uh, of the Quran, more like, you know, we women, I, I believe the rights of women both uh, went, that's what happens whenever a religion takes a extreme tone, tone, who suffers? Women. Yes. I, I believe yes. The, the, but, um, but there is hope. I am seeing Somali people now kind of going back to some tradition and seeing a lot of people are reading the book and thanking me and saying, wow, youngsters are saying, Justine, I really never knew what Somalia was like. Thank you for excavating this world for me and showing me the world my parents spoke or speak about. Yeah. So I know that your family went through a lot of hardship to get hardships to get down to the Kenya border to yeah. escape to, to Nairobi, uh, mm -hmm. which is the capital of Kenya. But to get there, and, and you got stopped at the border, and it's just, it reminds me of, of what recently was here in the U.S., all the Haitians that came to this country, came to uh, the Texas border, and there were thousands, I mean, thousands of Haitians, refugees asking for asylum. And that's kind of, that was what you went through uh, back in the 90s, in the late 90s. Let me say, Justine, when I saw the image, I was confused. I actually thought, is this from, remember when we were doing a slavery? For a minute, I honestly thought this is an image, a slavery image they modernized. Were they acting out? Is this a movie? Because truly, surely this cannot be happening in this. We cannot be on a horse, a white man on a horse, like whipping a black man. That is so triggering for a lot of uh, African-American and disrespectful. It's a trigger for them, you know? And then for me, as for me, and then once I digest what was going on, it was, I literally sat with horror. I, I actually tried to write a, a, some kind of a writing about it, but I was so shaken. I said, really, people are crossing. Then I saw a video, people are crossing, holding things. And yes, I remember being so desperate. I'm running from war. Uh, we just crossed in one of the war, worst roads uh, to come to Kenya, you know. The border is fishes, baboons, they're filled with, li the lions actually tried to eat one of my relatives. All of this, only to be told, you are not crossing this border. Exactly. So it was really crazy and 
I'm just grateful for it that we made it, you know. Yes, exactly. I'm here with Shagri Sal, and she's the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Shagri Saul, and we're talking about the time when she was a refugee from her own country. And eventually, you did, you and your family did get across the border and did get to Nairobi, and you were able to go uh, to Canada. That's, that was your first stop. And oh, I loved your description when you looked out on your first airplane ride. Mm-hmm. You looked out and you saw the whiteness of the mountains and you thought, oh, all these people must live within ice or something. Yeah, I mean, in a fridge or something. Uh, so to describe those early moments there in in Canada, landing in Canada. You know, Justine, that was really interesting because... I am a desert daughter, you know, a Somalian. No one even owns it. I don't remember owning a sweater. You know, we ran out when it was raining. The rain was warm, you know. And here I was landing in Canada in the dead of winter. And as the plane descended down, that was when I, I had a better view of the mountain. And I was thinking, really, these people live in a fridge like a, fro- you know, the freezing, the freezer section. And they truly want me to like, just like normal survive. It felt incompatible with life. And I remember asking my sister, what is that? And she say the word butterf. Butterf means actually the word butterf, you know, the translation is, is ice. So it's kind of like, Really, there is not even the word of snow doesn't even exist in our language, right? So oh, you can't capitulate that. So it was really, it's like someone took you, Justine, and took you to another planet. And you you will be bewildered. You would be like, what on earth? Where have I landed? I had so much questions, so much curiosity, so much. At the same time, there was excitement. But I was, I remember being afraid of escalators, elevators. You know, I was sure that escalator will take my clothes and swallow and then leave me naked. I was like... <laughs> Every day I go out, Justine, just to, I was exhausted from, like someone who started a new job. I was exhausted by just taking the bus. I have to take an escalator, an elevator, talk to people in a language I don't speak. It was just, I felt by the end of the day, I was an overloaded computer that just wanted to crash, you know, just. 
Oh, it must have been overwhelming. And I was surprised to learn that the buses there, and you were in Ottawa at the time, Mm -hmm. and the buses, each one kind of had its own combination of how to get off the bus. And there was a a really kind bus driver that mm-hmm. helped you out. Can you yeah. share that story? It's such a precious it, story. It, it is so interesting because sometimes, like I describe something, sometimes you pull on a rope, sometimes you you take steps down and then you have to step, step onto the right place and then the door opens. And I was just having a frustrating time. So just like new Zoom technology kind of time, right? You got to push all kind of button just to survive <laughs> to it. And I remember just, and you know what, Justine, I am also young and I don't want to make a fool out of myself. It's all, life is already, I'm already, I have a fresh of the boat written all over me. <laughs> I don't want to bring any more attention of like that I don't know what I'm doing. And in the end, you know, when I we left what felt like the end of Ottawa, you know, and he just was like, I have to put the bus away. This is the last destination. But I was able to tell him that I really, you know, didn't know what I was doing and then all of the stories. And he kindly explained to me all of them, what was going on. And you know what? Sometimes that's what I tell people. For a newcomer, the little things like helping them fill up application, taking your time to be with them, going out with them, taking a, you teach them a lot about their surrounding. And of course, we're going to embarrass you back as well. But you know what? There, it will become something one day when I know what I'm doing. We can laugh about that, <laughs> like all of us. So it was really this kind bus driver who was able to show me. And that day I felt really a little win, right? That I can at least, now I know how to take the bus, you know. He literally showed me, he took my hand and showed me all of these things. And I was very grateful for him. You describe Canada as a beautiful mother to you, nurturing mother. Canada is a really, it's interesting because Justine, the orphanage that I lived was owned by a Canadian um, woman, right? The the main owner was a Canadian woman. And then there was also Anne. So we used to sing about it. To this day, I have to sing to remember what each one of them uh, did. And we say, Kim na hoyo weye, Canada hawarto. Anna eda weye, Iglantu hawarto. What I'm saying is, I said, let Canada be blessed because Kim is a mother, right? Oh, let London be Kim the way. So Canadian really changed. They not only took me in as that orphanage girl, and we're not the first white people I saw, but also when I was disfranchised, when I become a refugee and I did not have a place to go and my own African countries kicked me out. Canada took me in as a mother again to that orphan child like it did once. And really this time, if I needed, I remember we were given for a welfare money. We were given clothes, food, everything. It was like, you now thrive and I'm watching over you. And because of that, I owe to Canada for who I am today. To be honest, they were, like I say, the first country who took me 
on and help me and invest in this woman and say, perhaps there is something about this woman. She is capable of something and she may be something one day. And I am so grateful for that. And I'm really touched by that. Yeah. Canada yes, is yes. the motherland. If I may add, even Please. today, I think because if I don't have insurance or if I ever go broke, guess where I'm going to go? Canada, because insurance is, I never have to worry about it. So Canada is still continued to be that mother figure where I, if I don't know what I'm doing, I'm still going to go. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Which reminds me to ask you uh, the question about the idea of your ever going back and visiting Somalia and going back to to have some closure. Have you thought about that? Is that in your plans at all? Oh, my goodness. That keeps me awake at night, Justine, and thanks for asking the question. Somalia and I owe each other closure. It's like a bird whose nest burned down, who flew out in terror. I am forever flying in terror until I have that closure, you know. I have done well for life. I am married to a wonderful Ethiopian man. I have wonderful kids. I have job, but I am longing to get closure from Somalia. I want to sift my fingers through the red sand. I want to touch the walls of Bondera, which was the district I was leaving when the war happened. I want to visit my high school. I want to walk to the market. You know, I want to do so much. And I know as a country who's been took a Wahhabism ed or being ruled sometimes by Al-Shabaab or Al-Shabaab is wreaking havoc even if they are hiding in the shadow of our people. I, I know that my life is in danger if I ever go back. But I also say that perhaps that is where um, the, 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 the urgency, the longing to have that closure is so strong that I know one day I will, I will do it, and I hope it doesn't become, you know, my demise. And it's just, it is so hard. Everyone deserves that closure. And I think I have healed writing this book. It was very cathartic. In fact, I used to have one of those horrific nightmares. And after I finished writing this book, I now tamed my nightmares with between meditation and hiking and appreciation for my ancestors and writing my feeling out. Actually, well, it's a big healing. I am today 90% better, but the 10% probably will come about after I have that closure from Somalia. And this is one step that this is one step that I am really grateful by everybody reading this book because perhaps maybe I could go back safely and let, I'm, I want this book to reach all the Somalis, even the ones that live in the desert. I hope that it can reach them, yeah. yeah. Oh, how wonderful. I, I just feel your grandmother uh, just watching over you and holding you in, in certain ways. Do you feel her presence? My grandmother is there with me all the time. And I don't know if everybody is like that. For a while, I was wearing this gardas, which is children wear on their neck. It's similar to this color, copper looking, but um, it's made of leather and people put the Quranic thing. Mine gardas was hippo, kind of a, because I'm from, 
you know, I live in a hippie town, Sebastopol, so my blood <laughs> had a crystal in it, right? But people say, oh, are you wearing that word of things? Actually, I was wearing because it was a remem- reminder of, of my grandmother. My grandmother is with me all the time. And I felt like even when I was writing this book, I remember sitting in my loft and writing and saying, talking to my ancestors, inviting them to the table and saying, I know if you don't want me to tell to tell this tale of yours, you will find a way to jeopardize. <laughs> but I'm glad they they agreed to 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 let this story out. And as a result, you are enjoying it today. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for joining us and in This deep conversation and all your stories are so fascinating and enlivening for our listeners. I've been speaking with Shagri Sal, who is the author of The Last Nomad, Coming of Age in the Somali Desert. And to know more about her work, you can go to her website, shagrisal.com. And she spells her name S-H-U-G-R-I, last name S-A-L-H. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3743. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, To subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.